You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sean Mullaney, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I thought long and hard about today's introduction. What scintillating stories did I have regarding 401ks, retirement savings, or tax deferment lurking in the recesses of my mind? Nada. Zilch. Nothing. There is nothing glorious, stunning, or podcast introduction worthy about 401ks and IRAs. Talking about tax deferment can be tedious, frustrating, overly detailed, and certainly not fodder for a first date. But it also might be the most important thing you can do to assure your future, keep more of the money you make, and live a long and well-funded retirement. Maybe not sexy, but possibly the most impactful discussion you'll have anytime soon. Today, we talk the rules of the road for tax advantage accounts with Sean Mullaney. Sean Mullaney is a financial planner and the president of Mullaney Financial and Tax, Inc., where he provides advice-only financial planning. He blogs on financial independence and tax at phytaxguy.com, and his recently published book is titled Solo 401k, The Solopreneur's Retirement Account. Sean Mullaney, welcome back to Earn and Invest. I want to start with a difficult question. I've heard a number of investors, especially real estate investors, call the modern retirement savings infrastructure 401ks and such money jail. Tell me why they're wrong. I think they're wrong for a couple of reasons. One, you have this great, what I refer to as a tax rate arbitrage opportunity, right? So the listeners are probably familiar with this idea of progressive tax brackets, right? The more money you make every year, and it's calculated on an annual basis, the more generally speaking, you pay in tax on that last dollar that has a, a flip to it, which is the more you take in terms of tax deductions, the more beneficial it is, the more money you're making. So what happens is folks are working during their working careers, they're making the most money they'll ever make, and they put money, say, in a traditional 401k, and that can be deducted against maybe the 32% tax bracket or the 24% tax bracket. That's great. That's 32 cents on the dollar, 24 cents on the dollar right in your pocket when you take that tax deduction. Okay, let's fast forward in time. Now you're retired and that could be an early retirement or it could be a more conventional retirement. If it's an early retirement, what we might start doing are these Roth conversions. We'll talk about them a little more later, where we're affirmatively moving money from those traditional retirement accounts into Roth. Those are tax-free accounts and we're paying income tax. 
but we're going back through those tax brackets. So that means we're taking advantage of the standard deduction. We're taking advantage of the 10% and 12% tax bracket, maybe the 22% tax bracket. And that's what I refer to as tax rate arbitrage. And a similar opportunity even exists for the more conventional retiree, where we're just taking the money out of the, the traditional retirement account to live off of. And again, we're going through standard deduction, 10%, 12% tax bracket. Not that this is risk-free planning, but for most Americans, you have some real good tax arbitrage opportunities when you use these tax deferred accounts for retirement savings. So I get it. Nobody wants to pay tax in retirement, but boy, you're, you're passing up a big opportunity if you don't contribute to these accounts. I want to tie a bow on this idea of tax arbitrage because I want to make sure from the upfront that people understand this. First and foremost, you're not avoiding taxes altogether. We're really talking about deferring taxes. But the theory is when you are in your highest income years, you're going to be in the higher tax brackets so that if we cannot pay those taxes now and defer, we eventually will get to a point when we're in lower tax brackets and maybe we can do some of these things like Roth conversions to make sure that we're playing the lowest possible tax on these dollars. Does that make sense? Doctor, you've absolutely got it. And it's also this difference between the marginal tax rate. So when we're working, we could put for 2023, it's 22,500, say, into a 401k, we're under age 50. That generally is going in and getting the benefit at our marginal tax bracket, the last tax bracket we're subject to. So say we're a higher income professional, we're paying, say, 32 or 35%, right, or even 37% marginal rate. So take your contribution, multiply it by your marginal rate. That's the today's in-hand tax benefit. Well, in the future, when we do, it could be Roth conversions, or maybe we're just in our 70s and we're just living off the money. Well, when we take it out, it goes back through all the tax brackets. Now, yes, maybe we have some social security income, some interest income, dividend income that are starting to fill up some of those tax brackets, but it might be, hey, we've got some runway in the 10% tax bracket to take money out or do Roth conversions and then the 12% bracket, right? So we're getting some real benefit in terms of the way the annual accounting system works for taxes and these progressive tax brackets. It's all coming together for those who are looking to do retirement savings where these deductible contributions can be very impactful early on, especially in the highest earning years of one's professional career. I want to pull it back for a moment. We're going to get to the seven rules of the road for tax-advantaged accounts. But before we do, talk about the history of retirement savings in general. A lot of people don't realize these concepts of 401ks and Roth IRAs, those things are relatively new, right? Absolutely. So the granddaddy of them all is just the taxable account, right? That's how you own something in your own name. And then what happened over time we first start with the defined benefit pension plan, right? So that's where, hey, I work for a large employer for 20 or 30 years. And what they promise is they say, well, you'll have this retirement benefit, which will be paid out on a monthly or quarterly basis when you're retired. But the problem with that, well, there are two problems with it. One, I had to stay at the same employer for 20, 30 or more years, right? That doesn't make sense in today's work environment. And two, if you're an employer, why are you paying folks who are sitting on the couch you know, why are you paying former employees? That doesn't make a lot of sense from the employer's perspective. So they moved on to, they call them defined contribution plans. And, and by the way, there are still some pension plans in the world, particularly in government sectors, but even those have been scaled back dramatically. And we all even still have social security, which is essentially a pension. But again, all these things are, are not that robust. So now we have these defined contribution plans. 
The first one, the IRA that we have today, was enacted in 74, came into effect in 75, if I'm getting my history right. And the 401k, which is the big one for most Americans, that comes from 1978, if I'm getting my history right. So these things are only 40, 45 years old. And then the Roths came in in the late 90s. It was passed in 97. The first year that you could have a Roth was 98. So in some senses, yes, we're still getting used to these accounts, but they can be very advantageous for a whole host of reasons, and they can help folks get to a place where they can retire with some security. It reminds me when we talk about the newness of these accounts, the tax code changes on a regular basis and gets updated frequently. Just philosophically, why do you think the U.S. system for reporting and paying taxes is so complicated? I mean... It seems like we could do this in a much easier way so that we didn't have to be so sophisticated about how to defer taxes and save the most money possible. Yeah, Doc G. So I'll give you just one example, something called the mega backdoor Roth. I bet with some of the listeners, this is very popular. This is where you can do after-tax contributions in a 401k and then roll it into a Roth IRA or convert it to a Roth 401k and you pay no tax basically. And you're getting 20 or 30,000 additional dollars into a Roth account every year. This basically came out of almost nowhere in the year 2014 because there were questions about, hey, what what happens with an after-tax 401k? How do I do this? The IRS issued a notice and it set off this wave among certain employers. So I think there are too many lawyers involved. There's too many. There's too much tweaking in Congress. Americans love their rules. I think <laughs> if, if we look at other cultures versus Americans, I bet you know. I'll give you the example: of football versus soccer. Right. So in soccer, there's a foul. The uh, referee just takes the ball, puts it down on the ground, roughly where the foul occurred, and they start playing again. In American football, they you know you have your play. You're close to the first down marker. Well, they bring out the chain game. And they do a precise measurement to see if you got that first down or not, right? There's instant, there's seven different camera angles for the instant replay. I think culturally, Americans love their rules and Congress can't stop tinkering. Oh, you know, there's this Secure 2.0 Act. It passed the House in, was that March or May? I'm forgetting, but it was in 2022. It's it, kicking around the Senate. It likely, some version of it may get passed in the lame duck in November or December. And they're just tinkering. You know, there's no paradigm shifts. It's so odd. So yes, Doc G, I, I think there's there's definitely frustration, you know, both among professionals and among the layman taxpayer. Hey, this stuff, they just keep tinkering. It'd be nice if we could have some stability. So you do have to stay up to date. With all these complications, why is it important that we get this right? I mean, we're talking about tax deferment, and it's easy to start thinking to fa- tax deferment is really the game. But the truth of the matter is the game is funding your retirement. Talk about how we're doing in the U.S. at funding retirements. Yes. So I think it's a, a real mixed bag. You know, in, in your book, Taking Stock, you talk about folks and where they are financially in their you know in their later years and on their deathbeds and i don't think any of them are saying boy you know i did roth conversions at the wrong time <laughs> right nobody's thinking that way that said i do think some of the basics that we're going to talk about later form the initial foundation right so what i'm trying to do at least initially is get some financial stability in my life And there are some little things I can do that can give me that financial stability 
and set me up for a successful financial future. Things like contributing to my 401k to the extent of the employer match, right? Things like, hey, I'm, I'm mid-income, I'm starting out, maybe I just fund the annual Roth IRA. If I do those two things, I'm already ahead of the game vis-a-vis so many other Americans. I do think it's a mixed bag. I think Social Security is a good thing. I think it's, you know, there are people who are worried, oh, in 2030 or 2040, it's going to start running out of money or paying out 75% of the benefits. My guess is that doesn't happen. So I think there's stability from Social Security. I think more and more people are getting educated about some of the basics on the retirement account savings. But there are folks who are getting left behind. And I think, you know, one thing I'm hopeful for is as folks like you have your podcast, as other content creators are getting out there, there are more voices. You know, I myself have a blog, right? I have a little YouTube channel. Hopefully between all of us, more and more people are finding voices that resonate with them and are getting the education they need to at least get the basics down, right? Not everybody needs to do a mega backdoor Roth. That's fine, right? But if we can get some of these basics down, we'll just have so much more financial security in America. And I think we're getting, we're going in that direction, but it's going to be, it's the long haul. It's not a, a, an overnight solution on that. So let's then jump to the basics. We are talking about the seven rules of the road for tax advantaged accounts. You talk about these in your book, the solo 401k. We're going to actually discuss the solo 401k in a few moments. But before we do, I want to go through these rules because I think they're pertinent to everybody. They are, as you say, the basics. Rule one, there are income limits and contributions to Roth IRAs. First and foremost, what is a Roth IRA? And in a few sentences, and specifically, why is it important that they're income limits? Yeah, a couple of things on that. Roth IRA is an individual retirement account. So to have a Roth IRA, one needs two things. They need earned income. You have to have some sort of job, self-employment, or your spouse could do it, right? It doesn't have to be you. It can be your spouse. So you need earned income and a pulse. That's it, <laughs> right? So it's sponsored by you. You go to a financial institution, go to their website, set up a Roth IRA. Roth IRA has no tax deduction on the way in, right? You contribute, say, $6,000 in the year 2022 based on your earned income. Great. That $6,000 goes in, no tax deduction. But the really cool thing about the Roth IRA is tax-free growth, right? Everybody loves tax-free. If we can get assets that are growing for 20, 30, 40, 50 years tax-free, that's going to be real advantageous. That could help us fund our retirement. Maybe we leave that to our heirs and they get 10 more years potentially of tax-free growth. Great, right? Now, there are income limits on the ability to make a contribution to a Roth IRA, which is a little odd to me, right? So, Roth IRA contributions are limited to 6,000 in the year 2022, goes up to 6,500 in the year 2023. You get a $1,000 catch up contribution if you're age 50 or older. So, that's real money, right? If $6,000 was on the table right now, you'd probably scoop it up real quick. But is that really paradigm shifting money? So they have these income limits on it, and it's so odd to me, right? But that's the rule, right? The rule says that in order to make an annual contribution to a Roth IRA, your income has to be below certain limits. It depends if you're single or married, filing joint. These numbers change every year. And the funny thing about it, too, is look to Canada. Canada has something like the Roth IRA. It's called the tax-free savings account. You know what the income limit on making an annual contribution to the Canadian tax-free savings account is? There's none, right? They realized a while ago, why do we have this complexity? Why do we have 
phase outs of this ability, right? So this is just one of those rules of the road that you have to understand. If you want to do a Roth IRA annual contribution, you just needed to do a little Googling search. The IRS has these numbers out there and they change every year. What's my income this year, roughly speaking? Am I under that number? If so, great. Make your annual Roth IRA contribution. By the way, it's not the end of the world if you contribute and then turns out, hey, I made too much money. You have to do a corrective procedure. It's called withdrawing the excess contribution and the earnings attributable to it. No big deal, but it needs to happen, right? So it's just an annoying rule of the road, but one we need to be aware of. Now, rule two sounds a lot like rule one. Rule two is that there are income limits to the ability to deduct contributions to traditional IRAs. Tell us about the difference between a Roth and a traditional IRA and specifically that word to deduct, right? Because you can make traditional IRA deposits and they can be non-deductible. Yeah. So the traditional IRA is the mirror image of the Roth IRA, right? Roth IRA is no tax deduction on the way in, tax-free growth, tax-free withdrawals, right? We love that. The deductible traditional IRA is the mirror image. We get a big juicy tax deduction on the way out, assuming we qualify to deduct the contribution. Now it's going to be taxable on the way out when we have our retirement distribution, either Roth conversion or just taking a distribution for our annual living expenses. But the traditional IRA can be very powerful. What the, the downside is not many Americans qualify to deduct a contribution. And this makes a little more sense, right? Because if you're Congress, you're thinking, hey, you know, we, we got we got to get some tax revenues in here to fund the government, at least theoretically, right? So they're a little more stingy on the ability to deduct these contributions. And it turns out many Americans, if they're covered by a 401k plan at work, that's a big test. If you're covered by a workplace retirement plan, 401k, 403b, defined benefit pension, you know any sort of plan like that, you're generally speaking not going to be able to deduct in many cases, not all, those traditional IRA contributions. And again, those are limited just like the Roth IRA contributions at 6,000 in 2022, 7,000 in 2023. And Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs actually share a limit, right? So if you do a $6,000 Roth contribution, you can't make a $6,000 traditional contribution theory, you could do three and three. And then Dr. G, you mentioned about this idea of, can I deduct the contribution or make a non-deductible contribution? So if your income limits is too high to deduct the contribution, and again, you got to look at at the then relevant numbers, they change every year, you're allowed to make a non-deductible contribution. And a lot of higher income professionals used to do this before the so-called backdoor Roth IRA where what we're doing is we're not taking a tax deduction and it's going to be taxable on the way out, but at least we can park the money in there and keep the interest and dividends away from the tax man until we take it out later. So some folks like these non-deductible contributions. They're less relevant in terms of long-term planning today. They can be relevant for short-term planning, setting up a backdoor Roth IRA, that sort of thing today. But anyway, so yeah, sadly, the traditional IRA still suffers from these income limits when we're trying to deduct contributions. So let's move on to workplace retirement plans. Rules one and rules two really talked about individual contributions. Rule three, there are no income limits to contribute to workplace retirement plans. Talk about what the different general workplace retirement plans are and and why is it important that there's basically no income limit? Yeah. So in terms of workplace retirement plans where the employee gets to make the contributions. The big ones are the 401k, which is for private sector, 
generally speaking, 403B, which tends to be nonprofit, and then 457, which tends to be some sort of governmental involvement, right? That's a broad overview. And the thing about these plans is now we need earned income from one specific employer. We still need that pulse that helps. And we need an employer, right? It could be ourselves in the solo 401k, or it could be our large W-2 employer. And the nice thing about these things is there's no income limit, right? Because they didn't want employers to have to test, right? So if you're working for Apple computers, Apple computers doesn't have to ask you about all your other income every year. They can just say, all right, max out your 401k, higher deduction limits. There is the traditional version of these things. There's the Roth version of these things. But the nice thing is, yeah, you don't have to worry about, hey, am I making too much money to make a contribution or to deduct a contribution? You just go ahead and make that contribution and it's easy peasy. You do it through payroll withholding. It's, it's, a, it's a nice feature of having a large employer because they often offer one of these plans. Now, rule four, I guess, sounds self-explanatory, but I want to get into more of the detail on why all tax advantage retirement accounts have annual contribution limits. Why does the government limit us on how much we can put towards retirement in a tax-deferred manner? Yeah, I actually saw this pop up on LinkedIn yesterday where there was a debate over this. Like, why are there annual contribution limits to retirement accounts? And the thing is, the government has an interest, and it's a reasonable interest, in not having the ultra-wealthy park all their wealth in tax-deferred or tax-free accounts, right? So if I'm the starting quarterback for you know an NFL football team and I'm making eight figures a year, I probably don't need eight figures a year to live on, hopefully. So I could say, hey, I'm making 40 million this year. Well, you know, pay some taxes or whatever and take $20 million, just put it in my 401k. And now I have all this tax deferred wealth. I don't have to pay taxes on that until later in life. Or I, hey, put in the Roth 401k, mm-hmm. I'll pay taxes now. And now all that $20 million worth of growth, you know, is just out of taxation. So it's reasonable. And, and look, the idea also is that you shouldn't need an unlimited amount to retire, right? The government is trying to incentivize retirement savings that's so that folks can have reasonable standard of living. And look, if you want to, you know, be high and mighty and and have the, you know, the big Cadillac in retirement, great. You can still save through a taxable account, right? You don't have to use a Roth IRA or a 401k or whatever it might be, or you max those things out and then you have excess cash flow. You're not spending it. Great. Open up a taxable brokerage. But it, it is reasonable that the government says, okay, the contribution is going to be limited to some form and it's rough justice, right? It depends on what Congress, you know, they have these inflation adjustments. That's fine. You know, Congress makes a, a decision, hey, this is going to be the 401k limit. This is going to be the IRA limit. That's what they go with rough justice, inflation adjustments every year. You know, that is what it is, but it's perfectly reasonable for the government to limit these contributions. Now, Rule 5 talks about penalties. There are penalties for taxable withdrawals prior to age 59 and a half. So when you put your money there, you kind of have to park it unless you want to pay these penalties. What generally are the penalties? All right. So the main penalty is what they refer to as an early withdrawal penalty. And it's a 10% penalty on the amount that's taxable from the distribution. So stepping back for just a second, right? So the government has incentive to say, look, we want folks in their old age to have financial stability. Well, if you build up a nice 401k and then blow it in Vegas in your late 40s, 
that's not going to be very helpful in terms of getting our 80-year-olds 80, 80 or 90-year-olds to having financial stability. So what they try to do is they try to lock that money inside the retirement account. Now, it's not really locked in there, but they're trying to, to give you incentive to not withdraw the money before age 59 and a half. And so what they say is, look, we're going to have a 10% early withdrawal penalty. Penalty. So if you take $1,000 from a traditional 401k and you're not 59 and a half or older, guess what? We're going to take $100, 10% of that as an additional tax, right? So not only is it taxable, whatever your potential, you know, whatever your tax rate is at that time, add this 10% penalty as a deterrence from you taking the money out between before age 59 and a half. So that said, there are plenty of exceptions. And the IRS actually has a decent website with a table on the different exceptions. And here's the thing, though, that I really don't like about the exceptions. The exceptions vary depending on if one has a IRA or one has a 401k or other workplace plan. They're not uniform. So some exceptions, one of the big ones maybe in this audience would be the so-called rule of 55. That says if you get to age, you know, the year you turn age 55 or later, so basically a roughly four and a half year time span, and you leave one particular employer and they had a 401k or other workplace plan, okay, between leaving the job and age 59 and a half, you can avoid this penalty if and only if you take distributions from that particular 401k or 403b. That penalty exception does not apply to any IRA in the world you have, mm -hmm. including if you just roll the old 401k into an IRA. So to my mind, that makes no sense, right? A CEO can leave a big employer, have a you know $4 million 401k and take penalty-free distributions. A nurse who early retires at 57 can't take from their own IRA. It makes no sense, but that's where the rules are. The IRS actually, to their credit, has a nice little website detailing the different penalty exceptions. So that's out there. Um, but this can be navigated through Roth conversions. There's tax planning. So this is more of 201 you know, versus 101. There's absolutely some tax planning that can be done to navigate those penalties, but they are in place and, and we do, do need to be cognizant of them. We are talking to Sean Mullaney, the Fi Tax Guy, and we are discussing the seven rules of the road for tax-advantaged accounts. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Hey, everybody, I have a total treat for you. Sitting in front of me right now, I have five copies 
of J.L. Collins' The Simple Path to Wealth hardcover, and each and every one of them is signed, and I am going to give them out to you. This is a contest. Here's how it goes. You need to contact me and tell me you're interested in a copy, and I want evidence that you either bought my book, Taking Stock, or if you've already bought it, evidence that you've left a review, either evidence you've bought the book or evidence you've left a review for taking stock. If you email me and send that to me and you are one of the first five people to contact me, I will give you a free copy of The Simple Path to Wealth signed by the author himself, pristine hardcover books. These things are beautiful. Here is the only catch. You have to decide how you're going to contact me. There are several ways to contact me, but I'm not going to tell you any of them. You are going to have to find a way. I don't care how it is. I will be checking all the different ways that people can contact me. And if I get your message and you are one of the first five and you can show me evidence that you bought a copy of my book, Taking Stock, or that you left a review of it on Amazon, one of these books could be yours Get it while supplies last. There are only five, and I will give them out to the first five people. Now back to the show. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Sean Mullaney. He is the author of Solo 401k, the Solopreneur's Retirement Account. And we are talking the seven rules of the road for tax advantage accounts. Rule one, their income limits on contributions to Roth IRAs. Rule two, their income limits on the ability to deduct contributions to traditional IRAs. Rule three, there are no income limits to contribute to workplace retirement plans. Rule four, all tax advantage retirement accounts have annual contribution limits. Rule five, there are penalties for taxable withdrawals prior to age 59 and a half, which brings us to rule six. I feel like we should have the menacing music here. Dun, dun, dun. Required minimum distribution starting at age 72. What the heck are RMDs and why do people get so excited about them? All right. So required minimum distributions are just that out of traditional retirement accounts. So at age 72, the government says, well, we've given you all this tax deferral, right? You took this tax deduction you know, in your 30s, 40s, 50s while you were working And all that interest, dividends, capital gains have been building up and they have not been taxed in that interim time, right? So those have all been tax deferred. So what they want you to do at age 72, they say, well, the party isn't going to go on forever in terms of all this tax deferral. So what we're going to do is at age 72, we're going to start making you withdraw a percentage of that account. And oh, by the way, we do it based on a life expectancy table. Because at age 72, we think you're still going to be around for a long time. So we don't require you to take out all that much. You go to this IRS table. I think it's something like 3.6%. Don't quote me on that. But basically, it starts off under 4% and it increases as you age because in theory, your death is closer and closer every year as you age. This makes sense because the government doesn't want tax deferral to become tax avoidance forever, right? So they have to have these requirement distributions so that at some point the money comes out. Now, people get upset about them because they're inflexible, right? What you literally what you do is you, you, you know, if you're 72 years old, you have to go to the year end balance last year and then divide that balance by the IRS table factor. So if you had a million dollars 
you have to take out a percentage of that, you know, in the year you turn 72, there's one little exception on that, but forgetting that for a second. And then you do the same thing the next year. They're A, they're inflexible and B, they increase every year as a percentage of your account balance. So folks don't like to do it. And there is planning that could be done. And we'll talk about it in the next, you know, in the next rule of the road that can help off, you know, can help reduce the size of these RMDs. And the reason why RMDs is so important is because you have to pay full tax on these, right? You are fully yeah, taxed on these Absolutely. as income. And that's what I think really pisses people off, right? When they get to this point where they've been having tax deferment forever, and then they are forced to distribute and forced to pay taxes, which is exactly what you were talking about. Bring us to rule seven, maybe a way to get rid of some of these taxes or at least lessen them. Rule seven is amounts can be converted from traditional accounts to Roth accounts, subject to paying income tax on the converted amounts. Talk about why that's important and specifically go into more detail about how that can actually help us deal with the issue of RMDs. Yeah. So the nice thing about the system is there's some electivity here, right? So we talked about, hey, we're in our highest earning years in our 40s and 50s. So we want to take tax deductions, right? And sort of bird in the hand beats two in the bush, right? But now we're creating a problem. So we got this big benefit, but hey, you know, the bigger our 401k gets or our traditional IRA gets, the more of a problem we have because at age 72, those accounts are getting bigger and bigger, which is going to ramp up our RMDs, which will then ramp us back up through these tax brackets. And the more our RMD is, the more tax we're going to pay. So that's not a good answer. Well, the, the Roth conversion gives us this ability to move the money affirmatively at our own election, right, from the traditional account to the Roth account. And what we could do is we can find those years that for whatever reason, we have artificially low income, especially for the early retiree, although this can apply later in life too, but that think about an early retiree, right? You've been working and now you're 55 years old and you're just not working anymore. So no W-2, no self-employment income. And think about you know your interest in dividends, even some capital gains are probably not going to be that large. So at least on paper, you look artificially poor, right? Your tax return, you start doing your tax return, like I don't, I just don't make that much money. Well, what you could do before the end of the year, before December thirty first, is hey, I didn't make that much money this year. Could I move ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand? from my traditional retirement account to my Roth account, that creates taxable income, whatever that number is. But you know, maybe I'm only in the 10% tax bracket or the 12% tax bracket. So now what I'm doing is I'm paying tax at a low rate that I know I lock in, right? And I'm lowering the balance of the traditional account. So if I do that systematically every year, you know, take advantage of some Roth conversions every year, I slowly lower the traditional retirement account balance. So when I get to age 72, oh, there's still some money in there, but maybe it's not so much. And so now my RMDs are lower and I don't go through as much of those progressive tax brackets. So that's what we're trying to do with these Roth conversions is one, lock in a low tax rate if we can, but then two, lower the future balance when we're 72, 73, 74 in our traditional retirement accounts. So we have lower RMDs. That's what we're trying to do when we affirmatively do these Roth conversions. One thing just to keep in mind, though, is there's no reversal on a Roth conversion. That is done. Once you convert it, there's no reversal. There's no going back. So you just want to be sure. You want to make sure you've at least looked at a spreadsheet you know, and, and just be very certain, hey, this is money I really do want to include in taxable income this year. 
So up to this point, we've been talking about the seven rules of the road for tax-advantaged accounts. And really, we've covered some of these rules when it comes to individual contributions in the form of Roth IRAs or traditional IRAs or workplace contributions when we're talking about the typical 401ks and some other of those types of accounts. Your book is the Solo 401k, the Solopreneur's Retirement Account. It's a little bit of a different situation, right? Now we're talking about people who are solopreneurs, people who work for themselves. Let's talk a little bit about the book. First and foremost, what is a solo 401k and who is it exactly created for? Yeah, the solo 401k is the 401k for what I refer to as a solopreneur. Generally speaking, those folks who work for themselves, perhaps they work with their spouse or they have it's themselves and only a very few part-time employees, right? So the idea is that a lot of folks now are either getting side hustles or going into self-employment for themselves. I myself went on this journey where I was a W-2 worker until age 40. And you know, since 2019, I've been working for myself. So this happens, right? And folks are now working for themselves. And it's like, wait a minute, when I work for myself, HR doesn't send me an email asking me to set up my 401k and how much do I contribute and what do I invest in, right? So you lose large employer-sponsored 401k, but you gain a lot of control, right? So you now can go and set up your own solo 401k. You have to work with a financial institution, generally speaking, to do this, but you're now the client. You have the menu. You know, you can say, oh, this financial institution offers these features and these index funds or whatever it might be. I like that, or I don't like that. So now I'm going to go to, to this next financial institution. You're in control and you get to control the financial institution, the investments, the contribution levels, right? There's a lot more flexibility when you work for yourself in the 401k, the solo 401k for the solopreneur. You don't have that built-in infrastructure, but you get a lot more opportunity. And, and that's the way I sort of look at it. Yes, there's some challenges there, but there's a lot more opportunity when you work for yourself. Talk a little more granularly about the opportunities the solo 401k allows that maybe those in the traditional workplace don't get the option of doing. The first one is you get to pick the financial institution. You work for a large employer. They've picked it, the financial institution for the 401k. They've picked the investment menu. These 20 funds, these 30 funds in the 401k, that's all you can invest in. Not so with the solo 401k. You go pick out the financial institution you go pick out the you know the funds that you want to invest in. So that's one opportunity. Second opportunity is the tax planning opportunity, right? So you can identify your own tax planning objectives and they're going to vary listener to listener and you need to do your, your own assessment there. But maybe you're like, look, I just need a lot of tax deductions now. Well, the solo 401k through employee contributions, just like a regular 401k, and employer contributions can offer large tax deductions. So that might be your planning objective. Or maybe you say, you know, I really like those Roth accounts. I'm worried about future tax hikes and I just want tax-free growth. So maybe you go structure it. So you set up a Roth solo 401k. You're now in control. You get to do that. And then the, the last thing that I really like about the solo 401k versus the large employer 401k is this ability to do large employer contributions, right? So we think about a solo 401k versus a workplace 401k, employee contribution, that's the IRS published limits every year. There's not much difference there, right? But where the difference really can come in is the employer contribution. Because think about it, you go to work and they have a, a, a match of 50% on the first 
6% you put in every year, you're making $100,000, quick math on a podcast, always dangerous, but by my math, that's about $3,000 of an employer contribution, right? You put in 6,000, 6% of 100,000, they match 50 cents on the dollar, 3,000. That's great. But with a solo 401k, same situation, you get to decide what the employer contribution is. And you could decide anywhere from $0, maybe your cash flow just isn't there that year, to about $18,500 in that example, and anywhere in between. So that's really a neat feature of the solo 401k. You know, at a large workplace, look, the employer is not a charity, generally speaking, right? So they're not looking to just max you out on the employer contribution. They're going to have their own set level, and that's it. And that's great, but that's it. Solo 401k, the contribution level on the employer side can be a whole lot higher. And I think it's important to make sure people understand this. When you're working for a company, the employer contribution is like free money. When you're a solo solopreneur, the employee contribution isn't free money, but you can put a heck of a lot more into your solo 401k. So the tax benefits of that will probably outweigh whatever contribution a traditional employer would give you. Well, it's also the best kind of tax deduction, right? So we think about tax deductions where maybe I have business expenses, right? So I travel to a conference and I pay a hotel or I make a charitable contribution. So I pay you know, my favorite charity money. Well, those are great. Those are tax deductions, but somebody else wound up with my money. The solo 401k, I'm paying myself. Now, yes, it's in a legally distinct account that is subject to early withdrawal penalties and all this sort of stuff, but it's a tax deduction for money I'm paying myself. That's pretty good. So we've talked about all the good things about solo 401ks. Are there some pitfalls? Are there some people who it's a particularly bad option for? There are pitfalls. And that's part of the reason you write a book about solo 401ks. I would say some of the pitfalls involve side hustlers where they don't fully understand the integration of the solo 401k and the workplace 401k. So when you have a workplace 401k and then you start a side hustle and you want to do a solo 401k, that's great. And that actually can work out real well. But you have to understand that the employee contribution for 2022, it's 20,500 for under 50. IRS just increased that to 22,500 for 2023. You have to coordinate that limit. That limit is per person, not per plan. So if you're a side hustler and you're maxing out at work, you know, maybe it's 2023, you're doing 22,500, you're under age 50. Great. That's awesome. But that means your solo 401k can't take employee contributions. You have to just coordinate that. Now, maybe you don't like your workplace 401k. You're only contributing five or 6,000, get that employer match. Now on the side hustle, we can still, we still have runway for maybe 15,000 in a case like that of solo 401k employee contributions. That's a big pitfall. And I think that that's something I talk about later in the book is you ought to just in January, February, March, just validate all the contributions you've made, right? Have a little, hey, you know what? I have this day where I work with my accountant or just do it on myself, do it myself. I look at my Schedule C income, whatever my income was last year, and I just re-examine, you know, I, I look at maybe Sean's book or I look at IRS Publication 560. They have actually a really good worksheet. And I just double check to make sure I didn't make any of these, any excess contribution. I just revalidate that, hey, you know, the contributions I made or I'm planning to make for the year, they work, right? I'm just going to double check that. I think that's another pitfall. Sometimes folks accidentally make these accident, these excess contributions. You just want to take a little time to validate the contributions that you made for any one year. 
Another pitfall I found interesting is this idea of the difference between a business and a hobby. If you are really doing what you think is a business, but really ends up being a hobby, either based on your structure or based on the income, et cetera, and you've been doing these solo 401k contributions for a long period of time, and the IRS ever comes and decides that it's not truly a business, then you're kind of in a pile, aren't you? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. So that would not be a good... So Dr. G, what you're referring to is in order to have a solo 401k, one needs self-employment income. And in order to have self-employment income, one needs a qualified trader business, right? You have to be in a trader business activity. I like to say that does not mean you need to be Apple computers, right? You know, you can have different levels of, of activity. The example I give in the book is, well, I had one where it's a photographer, right? Where they have a full-time W-2 job. It has nothing to do with photography. On the side, they occasionally do some you know, outdoor shoots, mountain landscapes, whatever it might be. And somebody finds out about it and offers them $2,000 for three of their photos. And that's it. That's a hobby, right? Now, that the income, it turns out, is actually taxable to you, but it's not self-employment income. So what I think you need to do is look at different sources. The IRS actually has a little page where they lay out some of the factors. You know, you have to think, are you living off the money? Is this related to what you primarily do? Are you running this in some manner to increase revenue or profit, right? It doesn't, like I said, it does not need to be Apple computers. It does not need to be 100 hours a week or even 40 hours a week. But it needs to be something more than, hey, I'm a stamp collector and occasionally I make a little money on the side because I, you know, I traded a stamp or I sold a stamp at a small profit, right? That's just that's a property transaction. That is not a trader business. It brings up an important point. We are a do-it-yourself community. On the other hand, some of these rules are fairly complicated. How important is it? to have tax professionals involved when when planning tax deferred savings in general and solo 401ks specifically? Yeah, I, I start with the Schedule C in terms of the income, right? So if I've got a side hustle and I'm making, you know, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, and I'm relatively, you know, sharp with things like TurboTax and I can do research well and I form some decent judgment, maybe I don't need a tax professional at that point. But I think there are, well, one, like I said, solo 401k has some pitfalls when we're doing side hustle, you know, coordinating that. But say I have, a, you know, I'm self-employed and that's what I do. And I'm making six figures. I think most people in that bucket really need at least to start a tax professional to do the Schedule C to do the tax return, right? So that's where we start before we're even talking about solo 401k. Let's start there. I think most Americans in that situation probably need to hire a professional. All right. And that's not a fun lesson. You know, nobody likes to pay professional fees, but I think that's where it starts to become worth it. And from there, well, okay, I'm making 120,000, whatever it might be. I probably need to be thinking about the solo 401k in that context. Now, part of what I'm trying to do is help taxpayers, help investors, help solopreneurs have informed conversations with advisors, right? Because I think that's where, you know, f folks will complain about, hey, you know, I, I, you know, I pay my tax return preparer and he or she doesn't give me advice or I don't understand them. Well, let's start building that bridge so that we can understand them. And that's part of the reason you write a book like this. Not that I have the answer for everyone in the audience, far from it, but at least we can start getting awareness and education 
so that a we have more of a, a better sense of judgment in terms of do we need to bring in a professional and two if we do bring in that professional we now have more of a knowledge base so that we can have productive conversations with that professional so i want to broaden the conversation away from solo 401k's and talk about tax deferred strategies in general what do you think are the legislative trends that are going to affect us in the next few years is the legislation going to change will it affect the way we save for retirement so short answer is yes. I do think there's going to be some legislative changes and I do think they're going to be impactful. One of the big ones that I think is going to happen in the next five years, regardless of who wins elections, is that they are going to have a provision that says, you know, those employer contributions we've been talking about, right? Today, you can only do that as, as traditional deductible contributions. There's no election there. There's no planning. It is what it is. Now, you can plan size when you're in a solo 401k. But there's no, hey, do I do traditional? Do I do Roth for those employer contributions? I think they're going to pass, and the House of Representatives already did pass earlier this year, a bill that will allow uh, employees to affirmatively elect to treat those employer contributions as Roth contributions. Hmm. Well, why do they do that? They do that not because they want to take care of you and me, right? That Hmm. is not why they do that at all. They do that because... That scores, when they're assessing these bills as tax cuts or tax hikes, that creates tax revenue in the 10-year window because they say, well, you know, Johnny was making a $3,000 employer matching contribution or was getting a $3,000 employer matching contribution deductible. He can now affirmatively elect to treat that as Roth, and that creates $3,000 more of taxable income for him this year. We collect more tax over the 10-year window. That's how they score these things over 10 years. They ignore years 11 and into infinity, which no financial planner would ever make a plan based on only these 10 years. And then we just assume you drop off the face of the earth, but okay, that's how they do it. So I think that's coming down the pike. I actually don't think that's a good deal for most Americans, by the way, especially those in the FIRE community who are thinking about an early retirement. Well, why would that be? Because do you want to have everything in a Roth when you get to early retirement? Probably not because you're going to lose out on this opportunity for tax rate arbitrage that we talked about at the beginning of the show. And you know, for there are a variety of reasons. You might want to actually create some taxable income affirmatively in that situation if you're early retired. I think that change is probably going to come down the pike. Look, I hope they have some simplification, right? This stuff gets complicated too quickly. It's, you know, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. I certainly hope it happens. But the one thing I I would bet money on in the next five years, I'd be very surprised if five years from now, they have not made that change where folks can elect to treat employer contributions as Roth contributions, which, like I said, I don't think that's a good deal for most Americans. I also don't like that that's now another decision we have to make. But I think that's probably coming down the pike. Well, Sean Mullaney, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. What we're talking about is tax deferment. What we're really talking about is tax arbitrage. And while that might not be the most exciting or stimulating of conversations, the ability to pay less taxes now when you were in higher tax brackets and defer to pay taxes later when you were in lower tax brackets can make a huge difference in your retirement account balances. And to not pay attention to it is just plainly leaving money on the table. 
I wanted to end this episode the way I end every episode, Sean, by asking you what is up next in your life? Where can people find your book? And specifically, if they want to ask more questions, how can they? So first and foremost, what's up next in your life and where can we purchase this book? Thanks so much, Doc G. What's up next for me is I'll be working with my financial planning clients. You can find my financial planning firm, MulaneyFinancial.com. I'll be blogging on FiTaxGuy.com. That's my blog on the intersection of tax and financial independence. And then, yeah, my book is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, some of the ebook, you know, where you get the Kindle or the Nook or those sort of versions. That's also out there as well. And the best way to reach you is to go to the fitaxguy.com. Absolutely. You can do that or on Twitter, Sean Money and Tax. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. And by having myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Sean Mullaney. That's a wrap. All right, I'll keep this running as we just chat. Um, yeah, I really like that conversation. Again, it, it's one that people sometimes are a little bit lackadaisical about having, and yet it's so important. And I think most people, your average person, probably doesn't understand it completely. They just don't get this whole idea behind tax deferment. They don't get this idea behind tax arbitrage. They don't realize that if you plan well up front, that maybe you might have some of those years where you can really do the Roth conversions, which can cut down on your taxes even more, get rid of those RMDs. It's like a conversation no one wants to have. We love to talk about accumulation, <laughs> but we don't like to talk about the other side of the equation is how we're actually going to manage that money we have and spend it appropriately and smartly. Well, yeah, and if you're willing to have 70 credit cards to do some travel hacking, <laughs> right, think about the expenses you could save on the tax side, where, where you have a partner in the IRS who's taking even 10%, right? If you could just save the 10% and that's it, that's all we're saving, then, you know, but for some people it might be 32%, 35%. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and, and Doc G, you made a great point around Americans love their rules. It's unbelievable. And this stuff... A law professor of mine once said, you know, the Internal Revenue Code is not like a house, right, where we have this nice big uh, blueprint and a nice frame and a concept and we build on top of ourselves. The Internal Revenue Code is a pile of sticks. And on occasion, Congress takes out a stick or two and then they throw another three or four sticks on top of it, right? And that's basically what's been happening, right? We have this pile of sticks. And then every two years, every three years, every one year, they come in and they say, well, these three sticks, they don't look good. We're going to take those out. And here's five more sticks. And they just go on top of the pile wherever they fall, right? Yeah. And so that's why I think we've gotten to this place where the whole system is just, it's, it's, it's too complicated, to be fair, right? Folks like me should not have as much to write about as unfortunately <laughs> we do. <laughs> it's keeping you busy though, right? It's keeping you busy as a CPA and as a writer, someone who comments on these things. Yeah, it's such a complicated system. Yeah, and it, it's funny how, you know, um, I, I've been doing something about the mega backdoor Roth, which some of the listeners may not like to hear this. I don't think it's fair at all because hmm. it's so dependent on your particular employer, right? So if you work at employer A, you could do 30,000 in a back in a mega backdoor Roth, you work at employer B, they don't have it. 
well, how the heck is that fair, right? That treats similarly situated people in a very disparate manner, right? One person gets to plow $30,000 a year into a Roth mm. account. The other person gets zero on, on the mega back to a Roth. Um, but that sort of came out almost out of nowhere. The IRS just issued this notice in 2014. So it's not like Congress said, you know, we want, want people to do mega backdoor Roths and have all this Roth savings for retirement. No, the IRS just issued this notice on an uncertain area of the tax law. And bam, you know, mostly the tech employers, but some other employers too, ran with it and said, oh, look at that. Well, you could now do this thing. And it became known as the mega backdoor Roth. So nobody ever made a decision in Congress. Nobody who we voted yeah. for ever said, you know what? This is what we want. We want 30000 yeah. a year into these Roth accounts. So, yeah, it just out of nowhere, these these rules can sort of change and permute. You know, there are these uh, mutations and all of a sudden it just got more complicated and there's more planning to be done. And people are experts at manipulating the tax code, right? They're yep. experts at taking exactly what's written there and finding the loopholes and the ways around it. Yeah, too much intellectual energy is, is spent on that, right? I, I, I think that's a fair. Um, yeah, I've seen that in my career, right? Folks who maybe maybe their energy and enthusiasm could be spent in other ways, and then look to a degree that's true of my own career. Uh, but you know, I, I work with individuals, so I do take some gratification and look. You know, I'm helping individuals get to a place where their finances are more stable and more secure for the future. So that that is a good outcome even though, yeah, some of these rules probably should not be the rules and, and should not be as complicated as they are. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. And I hope, wish you the best luck with the book. Um, keep doing what you're doing. I think it's important work. Thanks so much, Doc G. Always a pleasure to, to be on the podcast. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.